Today's podcast is sponsored by Google. Parents want their children to be more safe and confident explorers of the digital world, but sometimes it can be tricky to find the balance. So Google created Be Internet Legends. It's a free learning program that teaches children online safety skills through PSHE accredited resources for teachers and a fun online game for families too. In partnership with Parent Zone, Be Internet Legends has reached over 70% of UK primary schools with its free toolkits and school assemblies. To find out more and see how Google's resources can help your school, search Be Internet Legends. My guest today was raised in Selkirk and later Fife. Her father, an ex-footballer for Partick Thistle, and her mother, a Bible class leader. She studied at the University of Edinburgh, where she graduated with an MA in Literature. She then went into journalism, swimming with sharks and reporting from war zones, but went on to try and drive real change eventually, swapping the literal shark tank for a political one in the form of the Scottish Parliament. Her meteoric rise within the party is well documented. Instrumental in the 2014 Scottish independence debate and later an ardent Remain campaigner. She won the nickname Queen of Scots for her work transforming the fortunes of the Scottish Conservatives, replacing Labour as the second largest party in Scottish Parliament in 2016. However, while she was tipped by some as the future First Minister and Prime Minister, she resigned as leader of the Scottish Conservatives in 2019. Explaining her priorities, she said she never wants to be Prime Minister because she values her mental health and balancing family life too much. Now a Conservative peer, my guest today is Baroness Ruth Davidson. So Ruth, thank you very much for joining us today. On this podcast, we tend to begin by asking us yours a happy childhood. Some say it's a loaded question, so how would you describe your childhood? Oh, I don't think it is a loaded question at all. Uh, yeah, I had a really happy childhood. So I grew up, as you said in your introduction, first in the Scottish borders. My, my dad worked in the textile mills down there, and then when they closed, uh, the family moved up to follow follow him we had a bit of a period where he was working up in Fife and we were still living in the borders and then we kind of moved up and came back together again the kind of big event in my childhood doesn't sound that happy in that when I was five I, I got run over by a truck and was in hospital for a really long time and, and the doctors had to work quite hard to first save my life and then save my leg but weirdly all my memories from from growing up are all about kind of being active being outdoors you know playing football for the local boys team, learning to play squash and tennis at the, the, the sort of sports club along the road, you know, taking my dog for a walk on the beach. And and I think it's only now as a mum, looking back, the total and utter awe I have of my own parents for letting me be the active, risk-taking tomboy that I was growing up. Having had like such a serious accident, they not wrapping me up in cotton wool is such a brave thing for them to do. And, and I'm so, I didn't appreciate it at the time. I didn't realise because they treated me the same as any other kid. They treated me the same as my big sister or the same as all my pals. And even just doing that was such a strength, you know, to let me climb trees and, you know, play with the big boys and all that sort of stuff at the football pitch. And, and yeah, like they, they did really well. Do you think you're going to be able to do the same against your parents? <laughs> yeah. So um, my son just turned three last week and he is me all over the back he has absolutely the same high risk tolerance that I have he doesn't think that anything in this world exists apart from to be climbed up and jumped off he is really he's like he's he's at 100 miles an hour all the time he's super active and we started toddler rugby with him a couple of weeks ago and he's he's like loving that and and my partner 
she has a slightly different view of risk to me. So there's, it, it turns out, while we've got lots of the same values about raising our child, uh, there there is some like stuff around the margins and around the edges where, you know, I think if he falls over, then he'll dust himself off and he'll be fine. Whereas she thinks that, you know, we should try and make sure that he doesn't fall over and things like that. And, and like, I see her point, but I kind of also think that, you know, in a both in a practical sense and also in a metaphoric and philosophical sense you know part of growing up and living is falling over and getting back up again. Now you went on to study English literature at university but um, your childhood as you say sounds very scrappy physical adventures Um, were you also a bookworm did you juggle the two? Yeah well I was I was quite good at school I was never quite as academic as my big sister so she was a straight A student like got the Oxbridge interview decided to turn that down to go and do medicine turn down physics at I think Oxford or Cambridge can't remember which one to go and do medicine at, at Edinburgh Uni she was like the head girl of my high school I was only ever the deputy head girl so you know I used to benchmark myself against her uh, and consistently fall short on the grounds that I was measuring against the things that she was good at which she was pursuing and she took up the clarinet so I took up the clarinet she went horse riding so I went horse riding she did schools debating so I went did schools debating like I, I, I tried to do lots of things that she had done when actually I was much better at ball sports. I was much better at, at anything involving hand-eye coordination. I, I was good at debating, actually. I ended up being better at her than at, at debating, which was quite helpful, actually, in terms of later life. But yeah, so I went off to do literature. I, I don't know why, actually, because I've got hires in chemistry, physics, biology and maths, as well as English and German. So I did loads of science at school, probably because she did lots of science and went on to do medicine and stuff like that. But yeah, I wanted to be an English teacher. That's what I went off to uni to do. And... Um, Somewhere along the line in being a student, I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. And instead, you finish your degree and you're interested in journalism. Yeah, I wanted to be Kate Adie. It was very specific. It wasn't just that I wanted to do journalism. I wanted to be a female war correspondent. If I couldn't actually be Kate Adie, I wanted to be the next thing to Kate Adie. So yeah, that was that was what I wanted to do. And then... While you're trying to be KAD, you obviously start at your local paper. Or is My it... illustrious uh, journalism career began at the very significant paper called the Glenrothes Gazette, incorporating the Leslie and Mark Inch News. So if for no other reason, it had probably the longest title of any newspaper in, in the UK. But it was a great training ground, honestly, in terms of getting you out there to ask tough questions, to speak to people, to get past the, you know, picking up the, the phone and making the dry phone calls, which can be hard or, or, or chapping a door and doing things unsolicited. It was good in terms of being able to get me across some of the things that happen in council chambers, which can be quite complex to understand and, and explaining them. It was a great training ground. I really, I really enjoyed it. And then you eventually moved to the BBC. At what point do you think you peak in your journalism career? Because obviously you decide not to keep going. <laughs> well, I, well, do you know, I, I peaked early because my first radio station, which I did directly after the Glenrothes Gazette, uh, was a, a local station in Fife called Kingdom FM. And, and I went out to Kosovo to cover for, for a short time what our local regiment, the Black Watch, were doing at the tail end of the war there. So I kind of I kind of got the, the war correspondency bit in early. I mean, I wasn't actually reporting on a war, but um, I was doing a lot of the kind of softer stuff around what the troops were doing, etc. And, and part of my experience there compelled me a few years later to, to join the Territorial Army because I'd seen a, a TA officer command regular soldiers in a theatre of war. And, and you know, I, I didn't know much about the TA back then and I thought that it was a bit dad's army. It's kind of old and bold, a bit home guard type thing. And and that, that kind of blew my mind to see a, a young um, first lieutenant, you know, with a, a 
platoon and, and clearing IEDs from houses and, and all sorts of things in Pristina. So, so yeah, so, so it did actually have a bit of effect to me, but I'd always wanted to go to the BBC and I'd always had in my head that the goal was the BBC by 25. That was the goal. The week before my 24th birthday, I got a phone call when I was going down Argyle Street in, in Glasgow. Sorry, Buchanan Street in Glasgow. I got a phone call saying that I'd, I'd passed the board and I was getting in. So I'd, I'd, I made it a year ahead of schedule. So I was, you know, I properly like ducked up a side street and kind of jumped up and down and punched the air. And, and yeah, so that was that was great. And at what point in this do you start feeling as though you are a conservative supporter and also a would-be perhaps conservative politician? Right, so... I. I've always been as conservative and nobody has ever found this, but there was a magazine article, weirdly, done when I was in sixth year at high school uh, for You Magazine, which is the Mail on Sundays in-house magazine. And they took girls, like in their senior years, from about eight different schools, like from like posh schools like Rodine and then ones from socially depressed areas of Scotland, like Buckhaven High School, which is where I went. And, and they called it the Safi Syndrome. And it was about, you'll be too young to even know what this is. There was a, a, a show called Absolutely Fabulous, where the adults, like Joanna Lumley and Jennifer Saunders, are like drunken, falling out of cabs. But the daughter, who's called uh, Safi, is really sensible and is like going to go on and save the world and all this sort of stuff. So the, the whole premise of this was like this generation of really sorted young women and for whatever reason, was when the journalist phoned my school, I was picked to go and speak to them. Yeah, so I, I'm in there talking about being a conservative and, you know, how I thought that Margaret Thatcher did quite well, particularly in the first sort of seven years. And it, you know, didn't end well for her, but she, you know, she'd done well and, and all this stuff about how we have such a disposable society and that we need to like be better and all this sort of stuff. So I also said in it that I wanted to get married and have kids by like the age of 24 or something. So I didn't get everything right, but the, you know, there's, I, I still have a copy of the magazine. I've got, I've got long hair down to like my shoulders and I'm, I'm carrying a, this will show me how old I am. I'm carrying a ghetto blaster boombox on my shoulder, which is what they asked me to bring to the photo shoot. So, um, so yeah, it was all, all a bit odd. <laughs> <laughs> hiding in plain sight and I am a big fan of AbFab actually all right so, okay right. okay well you, you you'll be watching it in a retro and ironic way but I was there the first time around so <laughs> um ultimately when you became an MSP you were selected in 2010 as a candidate for the 2011 elections what was the jump that made you decide to go for that and actually well not just, right, you know, well, so it started before then actually so I I kind of, I, I love working at the BBC. I always thought that once I got in the BBC, that would be me forever. But but I did get frustrated because the job was asking people about what was going on and telling, um, and you know, broadcasting and telling people what was happening in Scotland. But it was specifically not changing things. Like you can't insert yourself into the story. You're not allowed to be an active agent of change. You've got to be an honest narrator. That is the job. And if you cease to be an honest narrator and you cease to try and direct the story rather than tell the story, you're not doing your job right in terms of, 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 of that. So I got kind of frustrated in that way that, you know, thrusting young women in their 20s do because they do want to change things and they think that they've got all the answers and they can be better than what's gone before. So, yeah, so I, I chose to take voluntary redundancy. There was a round of that going around and I applied to go back to do a master's at uni and also applied to join the Conservative Party because I'd been very kind of, on top of the idea that it's not just okay to be uh, impartial as a journalist and, and a presenter, as I was at that point, news presenter, 
um, you have to be seen to be. So I couldn't have been a member of a political party. I couldn't have been politically active. So um, so the day that I you know, handed in my notice at the BBC, I also put in my application uh, to join the, the Scottish Tories. Uh, and before I got to Hollywood, that wasn't my first election. So I did a by-election in 2009 in Glasgow North East, which was the last one before the 2010 election that lasted five and a half months, had 13 candidates, including three that had either been on Big Brother or Celebrity Big Brother. Total circus, loved it. Stood in the 2010 election, also in Glasgow, and then stood in 2011, and that's when I got in. So I'd, I'd had... I wasn't I wasn't quite Margaret Thatcher and having to go around all these selection meetings and doing sixty odd of them before I got elected, but I'd I'd had a I'd had a, a bit of, of experience in terms of, of tramping the campaign trail. And I suppose just for those listeners who, you know, haven't grown up in Scotland, have not uh, you know, grown up through the transformation the Scottish Conservatives have gone under, I wanted you to put into context what it's like what it was like being a Scottish Tory back when there, there weren't that many. Um <laughs> Yeah, so my mother was appalled, despite being a you know a good conservative that's always voted Tory. My mother was appalled that I would give up a good job at the BBC with a pension. With a pension, it had a pension. It was a good job with a pension. And my parents love pensions. Yeah, parents love pensions to try and get elected as a Tory in Glasgow, which was pretty like pretty much unheard of. We had one councillor on the council. You know, it's the largest local authority in the whole of Scotland. They've got you know dozens of councillors. We had one at the time. So we were getting about 12% in the polls. In fact, the election that I got elected in was our worst ever result. We'd been going down and down and down at Scottish elections since devolution began. That was our worst ever. Had we lost one more seat, we would cease to be considered uh, a large party and have short money and all that sort of thing. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't great. And, and I very quickly, my leader resigned on my first day in Holyrood. And I, for lots of different reasons not least because the deputy leader decided that we were so bad that he wanted to wind us up. Uh, divorces from the party down south, rebrand us and relaunch us because he thought we could never win again as, as Scottish Conservatives. I threw myself my hat in the ring in the leadership election that followed and became leader within six months of becoming a politician. So that that was quite big and, and, and mad and different. But when I did, one of the commentaries about that was that the job was, a, quote, akin to resuscitating a corpse so 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 that's how dead people thought the Tories were in Scotland at the time so so yeah I mean I think in terms of you know was it likely to be a short road to riches no (laughs) fair to say a bit of a Robert Frost the the road less travelled and you mentioned there obviously running for leader so soon after joining the Scottish Parliament how did your colleagues react to it did people say oh like you know well they didn't you're getting ahead of yourself (laughs) or or, have you thought about this or or in a way was did things feel so dire that actually it felt like normal for someone probably with less experience to go for it yeah well I mean I think you know there was 15 MSPs four of whom stood as candidates so that left an electorate it left a selectorate in terms of endorsements from colleagues of a living, of which I managed to garner two. I had the support of two people, but, you know, I was the, the youngest person in the corridor by some point, some way I was the least experienced. I, I was there to, basically, as a last roll of the dice, that, you know, to show that we could win again and, and that we didn't, you know, need to wind ourselves up. And and also, I mean, it, the, the election that I was elected in 2011 was the one where the SNP got the majority. So it became really clear really quickly that there was going to be a referendum on independence. And I believed passionately in, in keeping the United Kingdom together, but I also believed passionately that we couldn't have a situation 
where you had a prime minister of this country saying to people in Scotland, look, let's keep the country together. And Alex Salmond could turn around and tell him, you can't even keep your party together, mate. Not even Tories want to be Tories. Like, what legitimacy do you have? Like, I, I mean, I, I saw it as part of that much bigger question. So, well, lots of people think it was just, you know, shameless arrogance on my part. I mean, I had to be talked into it. I, I didn't, I, I actually didn't want to be leader that quickly. I would quite like to learn my trade on the back benches and not make all my mistakes in public because I, I have a set of professional pride and, you know, getting whacked around the head in public very early on in your career is is not fun and having that level of scrutiny is not fun and being told you're not up to it is not fun but I genuinely believed that it would have an impact and a negative impact on the referendum on independence which I believed was much more important than party politics to not have a Tory party exist anymore in Scotland and, and that was the reason why I ran. Yeah, and David Cameron, Prime Minister at the time, he said you know, a new Conservative star is born during that campaign against Scottish <laughs> independence. Yeah, he was always good with a hyperbola, was Dave, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. So um, you go from that, and then obviously there's the EU referendum. So two huge campaigns where, again, it feels as though Westminster starts to rely on you in terms of the Tory government more and more. Well, I'm not, I'm not too sure about that, but I mean... Well, I, I, think I suppose were... I just mean in that Remain campaign, it really felt as though... David Cameron others kind of saw you as one of their best communicators? Well, I think, to be honest, in, in the way these campaigns work, they always kind of do, they always kind of test who hits what base and, and you segment the voting population and you know, you know, what you're trying to shore up and all the rest of it. And in terms of having remained, for whatever reason, I was asked if I would do it and I was happy to do it. What's interesting is the way the campaigns worked and the way the, the debates worked the people that did the first couple of really big telly debates are not the people who did the one at the end, the big BBC one that was held at Wembley. And it's interesting that sort of Labour's pick was Sadiq Khan, who'd just done the mayoral election. And and the Tory pick was, was me, who had spent a long time doing the Scottish referendum. So, so we'd both had our election, sorry, the Scottish um, Parliament elections. We'd both had our elections in May. And then, you know, the result came in and was it June or July or whatever it was that the, the um, I think July, that the, the referendum was. So so we were quite kind of, we hadn't done a lot of the start of the campaign, but um, but we came in kind of as, I guess as the cavalry at the end, but turns out we were 4% not good enough. But for such things, the world turns and I'll never quite forgive myself for not getting that 4%. After that EU referendum, you have a situation where the Tory party starts to change too. Um, you know, in terms of a new leader, we Theresa May, someone who you worked closely with in the sense that I remember being at union receptions, have heavy praise again in your direction, but obviously a really tumultuous period in politics. And perhaps actually because you um, had been in Scotland for the independence referendum, maybe it became less of a surprise. It, maybe it was more kind of business yeah, I mean, as usual. I think, I think for me, there is a huge frustration that, that we'd had this independence referendum, this binary constitutional referendum we'd seen what happens in them we'd seen how people get pushed into camps we'd seen the fact that the 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 bad feeling gets worse after not just in the run-up not just while it's there and we hadn't learned the lessons of that and and I think we also hadn't learned the lessons of how long it takes to be able to dismantle an argument like we had an 18-month referendum campaign in Scotland the idea that you could get one up and down in, in half that for Brexit you know was always, I think, unrealistic. 
um, if the Prime Minister wanted to win it for Remain. Sorry, I, I know I'm speaking to the spectator here, who's just a spectator audience who's not on my side of this, but just to explain it from kind of the way in which I thought, uh, you know, I, 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 I think there were lessons that could have been learned that weren't learned and that could have made a material difference. And I just wonder, because obviously you made the decision eventually to step down from your role of Scottish Conservative leader. We are, we are rowing through the years here, um, because ultimately this is a short podcast, so we're not doing it quite as well. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think, sense. you know, I did, I, I did, I, I did miss David Cameron. He was, you know, I always thought not coming from a political family, my parents never were members of a political party, you know, we were never a family that marched or protested or did any of that we just you know paid our taxes and voted every time the you know the the polling stations opened we did our kind of electoral duty but you know we weren't a political family i'd always thought that you had to be in with the bricks and spend 20 years posting leaflets before you could even be considered as a candidate and to have david cameron stand up on television and say things like i just want good people that want to do a good job i want people from different backgrounds i don't care what school you went to or how old you are or where you live just people that have contributed to their community to come forward and and also to to have somebody say that and say look we can make sure that you you know you you can do a job for us but also to go to places like stonewall a conference and stand up and apologize for section 28 so as a gay woman that meant a lot to me to 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 believed that the party had changed still believe the party has changed I think he did a, a, a very big job of work in changing the party to have him leave when I was simpatico with a lot of his beliefs and the way in which he ran the UK Conservatives was quite a big change for me um I've always liked Theresa May I've always valued her you know all the things that, that people say that are cliches about her, her sense of service her sense of duty the fact that she's you know, she's serious about what she does and she will read all of her notes and briefs. She never wings anything. You know, I, I, I you know, she is a woman of substance and, and while our views on some things didn't agree and weren't as simpatico, we weren't as, as, as clear a fit. I, I hope that I was a, a good colleague to her. I certainly tried to be and particularly, you know, it's very difficult when you don't have a majority in, in, in that parliament you know, it, it, that, that 2017 election is really weird for me because it was the big breakthrough for the Scottish Conservatives. For the first time in 38 years, we had more than one MP in Scotland. You know, we'd we'd done better than we'd done for, for 40 years. You know, we'd pushed Labour into third in Scotland for the first time in 60 years. You know, to, to get those 13 MPs was a massive breakthrough for the Scottish Conservatives. Enough probably to stop a Corbyn government, actually the way that coalitions would have worked. But so so we were in Scotland kind of on top of a cloud and, and, and then the difficulties that became for her premiership and how could we help that? You know, it was it was a difficult time, but I, you know, I still I, I, I really like Theresa May and I absolutely think that the party did her wrong. And, you know, she she might not have been the right prime minister at the right time. She might not have been. And you look at something like COVID, where somebody with her skill set probably would have done so well in terms of being able to work with Sage and being able to be on top of the detail and, 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 and you know, all of that. It, it might be that prime ministers have come in the wrong order for the United Kingdom in some senses. But, you know, there's always a, a bit of me that will feel as if there were colleagues that let Theresa May down. Whatever her own feelings and nobody's the complete package. I, yeah, I... I, I will always feel that, I think. Yeah, and actually perhaps history will judge her more kindly. 
Well, I think so. I mean, if you look at some of the things like what's going on right now with the Northern Irish Protocol, you know, she saw that. She that you know, if you look at the difference between the Theresa May deal and, and the Boris Johnson deal, there is a sense by which the DUP had it in their own hands to not have what's happening right now in Northern Ireland. And they chose to vote against it. And everybody else has to, to deal with that. But there, there was a solution there. And it was sitting on the table. And at the time, I urged people to vote for it at all three votes. Um, actually, in my leaving speech, I urged people to go with whatever deal we could get across the line, because by that point, it was dead. But, but yeah, I mean, there was a solution there that would have undone a lot of what's happening right now. And the tragedy of all of this is that nobody talked about Northern Ireland before the vote on Brexit in 2016. If we spent a bit more time talking about that first and dealt with it first and concentrated on it first and remembered that the United Kingdom is more than just the rump of England or even England and Wales, we could have avoided a lot of this. Now, I just want to ask you a few final questions before we um, end this podcast. And I think touching on a few things you said there. So when you made that decision to step down, you pointed at well two main things, one of which was ultimately how things had changed, that Brexit result, the Tory party changing. But you also talked about, obviously, your family and how you wanted to prioritise yeah, so that. It, it, was, it was both. And I think one without the other, I, I possibly would have stayed for a bit longer and, and, and vice versa. But... Having just come back from maternity leave, having had a child, having all of the guilty feel feelings that, that I would imagine most women that work full time have when they go back to work, feeling that they're not doing the they're not being the mum that they want to be, but they're also not doing their job to the level that they've done before, was part of it. There was also an element of Prime Minister had changed while I'd been away. I saw really clearly that we were about to head into another general election. I mean it hadn't been announced or anything like that. There was but it, it, the, that was the only solution to the, the, the issue that was happening in the House of Commons, that there would have to be another election. And, and I don't know Boris well, but I know him well enough to know that, that he's happy to roll the dice on big calls. And, and that was the clearest big call that there was, go, was going to be. And knowing what it takes to have a successful election campaign, like, like I, I, couldn't have, I, I couldn't have led the party in Scotland at the level that it takes to run an election, because by the time you get to polling day, it's 100 hours a week easily. To, to do that and you're all around the country and you know I was I don't actually I'd only just stopped breastfeeding but you know my child was was eight months old so <laughs> it was really young and also it was really clear in that election that it was going to be a general election based on Brexit and you know I was kind of one of the chief remainers I, I, I one would wouldn't compromise myself to to talk about how much Brexit was going to be brilliant. But two, I'm also the wrong person to do that. I can't carry that message. I'm, and, and politics isn't just about messages. It's also about message carriers. That's how you connect with the electorate. So there, in a sense, it, it wasn't even... It, of course, it was a choice, but it, it didn't feel like a choice at the time. It felt like, of course, I had to go. Of course, I had to go. You know, the Prime Minister had a fresh mandate. I was failing to be the mother that I wanted to be. I was failing to be the leader that I wanted to be. I had to had to let somebody else have a crack at it. We always talk about progress in politics, you know, things are yeah. getting better and you can see it a bit both in terms of the lobby MPs for women. But I wondered, do you think it is possible to have that frontline politics career and, and be a dedicated parent? Do, do you think it is a trade-off that you are trying yeah, to Yeah, well, I, th- I, think, I think you 
you can, depending on the support structures around you. If you look at Jacinda Ardern, she's doing it in, in you know, New Zealand. But her husband gave up his job to care full-time for the family. Now, me and my partner both work full-time. And, and even, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I got quite a lot of stick from people when I did step back for saying this is a terrible example to women and you're letting women down and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I did have to point out, I am still working full-time as an MSP. And in fact, being an MSP is more than a full-time job in and of itself because there's evenings and weekends. And I think there is an element to which we still judge women and women still judge other women. And I, I think it's one of those ones where, you know, we really do have to walk a mile in each other's shoes before we're able to, to talk about that. And, and people balance how they run their family, how they keep a roof over their head and pay their mortgage in, in different ways. I'm certainly, certainly of the view that we have to give women a bit of a break and, and men who increasingly are doing more of the childcare. And I think that we'll only get to a stage where things get a lot better when there is a re recognition and a realisation uh, and a willingness that companies give men as much time off as women and that you have that paternity leave and it, and it becomes a more equal burden, particularly at, at the beginning of childhood. Burden sounded pejorative there, don't get me wrong. The best thing I've ever done, love my son. And for somebody who... Like I say, I had a very bad accident when I was a kid and I was told that I would probably never be able to have, to have children because of some of the internal damage and grew up thinking I would never be able to and then realised I was gay. So there was like this double, I'd never have kids. To have such a late blessing at the age of 39, there was also a part of me that wanted to spend more time on that than I was able to do. And I'm, I'm really pleased and, and COVID's been a horrible time for lots of people uh, and, you know, has not been out without its stresses for me and some of my wider family. But one of one of the good things about COVID is I've got to spend more time with my son, uh, even more than I'd, I'd had, you know, stepping down. And, and I think a lot of people have found that within their family. And you're now in the House of Lords. Yeah. Uh, you gave your maiden speech just last week. So how are you finding juggling that with motherhood? Because you are obviously having to do that. Yeah, so so it's it's a different style. Because I stepped down sort of two and a bit years ago now, we had kind of time, Jen and I, my partner, to kind of map out what happened next and how we juggled sort of family and caring responsibilities and work and things. And the announcement for the House of Lords was almost a year before I took up the post because I was always going to finish in Hollywood first. I know other people have double-hatted. Personally, that wasn't for me. I needed to give um, my full time and attention to Hollywood, particularly because a lot of my constituents were affected by COVID and the, the workload for MPs and MSPs and everybody's been really, really high to... To help people so we, we've had a kind of year to kind of plan it and you know I'm a working peer so there is an understanding I'm not down every day I'm not there five days a week um, I'm doing two days a week and I'm spending the other five days at home my partner does a four and a half day week but she's also because of the restrictions etc she's working from home as well so the balance that we have we're managing to make it work and the other commitments that I've taken on I'm not doing a full-time job alongside that so I'm uh, I promised Jen when I stood, stood, stepped down from the leadership that I wouldn't take any big jobs until after my son and, and if we're blessed with any other children uh, until they're at school and I'm, I'm one promise that I'm planning to keep and, and you make loads of promises to family when you're a politician and sometimes life gets in the way but but so I'm, I'm doing a bit of board work doing a little bit of media work but I'm present in the house and, and that's how we're balancing it. Now, final two questions. Um, yeah. You've mentioned David Cameron, you've mentioned Theresa May, you've praised both. I just wondered, in terms of Boris Johnson, do you, do you still have contact with him? 
do you, you know, you look at the Tory party led by him, are the things that pleasantly surprise you? There's obviously been reports that you didn't always, you know, completely see eye to eye. Well, look, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty kind of open about this. You know, I, I didn't vote for him to be leader of the party, but I want him to succeed because I think when the prime minister succeeds, the country succeeds. And yes, I disagree with him on lots of things. And, and when I do, I'll, I'll say it, like cancelling the universal credit uplift, for example. But when he does something that I, I that I do agree with, then I'll, you know, equally I'll, I'll, I'll go out and bat for it. So things like giving... British national overseas passport holders uh, a route to citizenship in the United Kingdom from Hong Kong, I think was absolutely and, and the right thing to do. And standing up for standing up against China when they tried to put pressure on it for us was, I think, not just good, but also brave. And lots of other countries wouldn't and, and didn't do do that. So, so yeah, I'm happily in a position where I don't have to toe the party line. <laughs> not that I've ever really been one much for doing that, but I am a conservative. You know, I, I believe in personal responsibility I believe that a pound in the pocket is better spent by the person that earned it I believe in you know conservative values but where I disagree with the prime minister then I'm going to say so and the union yeah in a way the independent polls they're in they're in a less bad place than they were say a year ago so are you encouraged by that because some people did say you know Boris Johnson won't be the right person to well I mean I think we we saw a crossover around about December January last year We've consistently seen support for the union continue. I think that when you look at the big challenges facing the world, like COVID, like climate change, like COP26 that's going on at the moment, you see that the future should be in more working together rather than than trying to split up. And there is, I've always found an intellectual incoherence between the SNP's position of wanting to remove themselves from cooperating with the closest three countries that we have in the United Kingdom and sitting in the UK Parliament and wanting to put more emphasis on being six members in a 750-seat parliament in Brussels. I, I think there's an utter intellectual coherence of wanting to be part of, of both wider unions, and I've always fought to be part of wider unions all of my adult life. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's where we are. I, I, I don't think for one second that our side of the argument should be complacent. I think we need to, to make and remake the case for the United Kingdom, you know, each and every day. But it's a strong case. And honestly, I'm Nicola Sturgeon will do a, a push at the end of COVID to throw red meat to her own supporters because she has to, but she knows she's not getting an independence referendum anytime soon. She's not really pushing for it. And, you know, I think people are, are waking up to that fact. Now, the final question is when we ask everyone on this podcast, which mm-hmm. is um, not the best advice, but the worst advice you've ever been given. And I'm sure you've been given lots of advice <laughs> over the years, um, some of which you've hopefully ignored. Yeah, do you know, I think it, it probably wasn't the worst in the sense that it would have been effective. But the most annoying piece of advice I've ever been given was when I worked at the BBC, I was a young woman in a hurry. It's, it's, it's interesting to watch me, watch myself step off the treadmill a bit like I have in the last couple of years. And the fact that I don't mind it, because I would have expected that I would have gone nuts doing it. But, uh, you know, I was in early to BBC. I was, I think, probably the, the youngest main presenter when I presented their BBC Scotland's main afternoon news and current affairs programme on the radio. I was desperate to get into telly. I, radio I was doing, but I desperately wanted to get into telly. And a, a friend of mine uh, said that if I wanted to do that, I probably needed to lose some weight and wear more makeup. And that was entirely the wrong thing to say to me. Like, she meant it in a good way. She's a pal. Like, it wasn't like it was some big dinosaur of an old man boss that was telling me that. It was a pal that worked in telly that was like, genuinely, you should do this. And like, that'll that'll boost you a little bit. And I was, that just, red rag to a bull, 
like absolute red rag to a bull. So um, so yeah, that was probably the the advice that pissed me off most than anything else. <laughs> yeah, that's not great. Okay, thank you, Ruth. Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thank you.